Hello, and welcome to Need to Know, your weekly investment podcast brought to you by the experts of Coots. I'm Sarah Muir, and I'm joined as always by Coots CIO Alan Higgins, plus special guest this week for our US earnings special. It's Coots US equity expert, Howard Sparks, a friend of the podcast. Now, um, as we've mentioned on, on recent introductions to Need to Know, of course, we're very mindful of the tragic events that are going on in the Middle East at the moment. Um, but we feel it's very important to leave the discussion of geopolitics to those who are far more qualified than us. So what we're going to focus on every week, as we do every week on Need to Know, is, is the three things investors need to know. Now, whether that's for the immediate week ahead or looking at longer term trends. Um, and obviously, with Howard on, we're going to be looking at earnings season this week. Um, but before we get to that, a couple of things to catch up with you, Alan. Um, first of all, you shared with me um, the link of, now I need to pronounce his name right because I spent far too long in Germany, Byron Wien. He died recently, didn't he? And I know you you had some thoughts you wanted to share on Byron Wien. Yes, uh, really inspira- inspirational character. I worked with him at Morgan Stanley. Okay, he was very senior at Morgan Stanley, then went to Blackstone and, you know, continued to work very rigorously late on his career. So, I mean, one of his genius acts was coming up with the 10 surprises every year. I think we should do a little bit about that. And and, mm. and and by that, it was very subtle because what he would do is come up with a surprise. I don't know, I'll think of something for next year, something like um, uh, he would look at something which the markets really don't predict, but he thinks there's a higher probability than the market predicts. So I don't know. U.S. bond yields, which are currently five, falling below four. Most people are not predicting that. Yeah. But he would give a higher probability on it and go through the reasoning why he'd give it a higher probability. So they were not ridiculous surprises. And um, they were really good and thought-provoking in terms of your portfolio. Mm, what if? So I think we should do that. But also um, what is really popular and all over the, the, the Internet um, is, is, is basically lessons for life. Yeah. 20, you can Google it. I'll just mention one, for example, which uh, resonates with me um, briefly. Network intensely. Luck plays a big role in life, and there's no better way to increase your luck than by knowing as many people as possible. I mean, he goes on to talk about lectures and sending books and and great things like that. But um, Mm. what an amazing guy. What an amazing career. And um, to pay homage to him later later on, Sarah, we'll, we'll do maybe if not 10 surprises free surprises for the next year yeah definitely yeah and and, and for those of you that, that perhaps don't know baron baron by sorry byron ween as i didn't until i was prompted to go and look him up by alan um read about him read through what his 10 surprises were for this year read through his life lessons they're really really interesting um but it's also i guess um passive versus active we talked about this last week and you were talking about how many active managers failed to beat their benchmark and you had a little bit of a revision to that number i think didn't you so revision to the number and also uh one person got in touch with me only one but made a very good point it basically said so the, the data is this and it, this is from S&P, they call the SPIVA survey. And they do it very well because they take out survivorship. What does that mean? So a fund that's really underperforming, um, obviously no longer, and was and was closed down two years ago, is no longer on databases today. Mm. S&P have put it back in, if you like. Uh, that's a bit of a, it can be a double-edged source in the sense that it could be a real terrible doggy fund, that doggy technical term, that no one would have invested in. 
Um, but um, also it, it's very pure. But anyway, the numbers are this. Over five years, 87% of managers in the US underperform. It's, and so someone asked me, okay, you now you, you made the big call. It's now time for active. What does that actually mean? And that was actually quite thought-provoking. Do do, does, does, does that number fall below 50%? I don't think it does. Um, mm -hmm. I still think it's incredibly challenging. So does that mean Coots completely turns its back on passive? No, no. It's, it's, it's completely challenging. But does that number fall towards 50 to 60? Um, I can see that. And uh, we can go through reasons. For, well, we gave reasons for that last time. And uh, maybe we'll have an interesting debate with Howard later on active versus passive also. I think, yeah, I think that's going to be a topic we're going to be revisiting, revisiting towards the end of this podcast. And then finally... Uh, it is a bumper week for central banks. I mean, I get the sense that other than Japan, which is intriguing, it's a little bit, there's nothing very exciting to sort of expect from the Bank of England or the Fed this week. No, both of them are in table mountain mode, mm. hold rate steady and hope that nothing breaks. There's a realisation, one inflation is falling and they've done a lot. So yes, that, that nothing there, but Japan is intriguing um they're really fighting an old battle trying to keep uh bond yields very interest rates very low but in a very targeted way and and but also trying to protect the currency something has to give there what they've done is is, is basically loosened again but not enough in my mind but i think yeah. that, that we'll need to do that in more depth another time sarah yeah okay all right well that that sure we'll be revisiting that okay so as we've got two of you on we are still stuck with our not stuck that what we do is we have three things so howard i'm giving you two alan's going to get one so howard what are the two things from you we need to know about us earning season well thanks for having me back on it's a it's an absolute pleasure to be be on here uh q3 earnings were great that's the first one I'm going, okay. but, but, dot, dot, dot. But, there's um, a big but, yeah. isn't there? <laughs> the investor reaction has been pretty awful. And I might dig into some of the reasons why that might have happened. Um, okay. And then secondly, let's have an update on on my favourite and your favourite film, The Magnificent Seven, um, not just of the film, of the, of the stocks and... Uh, yeah, let's, that's my my two things. Okay, brilliant. Okay, and then Alan, what's what's your one takeaway then from uh, from US earnings season that you want to bring to our attention? I want to be a bit more longer term, but having said because Howard's mentioned the Magnificent Seven, we'll, we have to have a discussion about the Magnificent Seven in the context of active versus passive, because mm. the Magnificent Seven, well, Magnificent Seven plus Berkshire Hathaway make up 30% of the S&P 500. Yeah. Um, so I'd be really in, and, and that's been obviously really challenging. It'd be interesting on in his thoughts there, but but I want to talk about earnings, and I want to talk especially about this theme that oh, um, analysts are over optimistic, and I'll put that in a longer term context because you hear that all the time. Analysts yeah. are too optimistic. Okay, all right then. Well, back to you then, Howard. So basically, earnings seasons, Q three earnings season. I mean, we say this about every earnings season; they're always great, greatly anticipated. But but how is how is Q three earnings season looking so far? We must be fairly close to the end of it now, aren't we? Yeah, we're I guess about two thirds the way through. Uh, enough of a way through to have an idea about what's what's happening and what the the key messages are. Although a lot of consumer companies, remember a lot of consumer companies because of where Christmas falls, they kind of tend to um, have a January year end. So as a result, they're, they're still to report. But 
still, I mean, on the face of it, when you look at it, we've seen 79% of companies in the US beating expectations. Uh, so normally that's that number's around about 65. Mm. So on the face of it, it's been a very good earnings season. And we're now on course for 2% earnings growth year on year. I remember over the last three quarters, we've had negative earnings growth year on year. So we're coming yeah. out of this 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 trough uh, back to positive earnings growth, which is um, should be good for good for markets. But digging beneath the surface of that um, sales, if you look at just the top line, so sales and revenues, um, we've only seen forty seven percent beats compared to expectations, and that's actually below average. In Europe, actually, it's it's even worse. Uh, I think about 35%, but let's leave Europe uh, to one side. And the other thing that was striking, I got this from uh, from Savita uh, at, um, at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. I know you've mentioned Savita before, um, the strategist there. They look at mentions on com- company transcripts of weak demand. Uh, so that, you know, they, they as you know, uh, when companies release results, they obviously have a, an accompanying statement that they they read out and have an analyst call. And and what the the boffins at Bank of America have done have counted up all the times that that weak demand gets gets mentioned. And those mentions are kind of back to um, COVID and and also back to two thousand and nine levels. So. Okay. Something Mm -hmm. is happening, right? Um, And, you know, so I I guess that that's perhaps the reason why, you know, we've seen such a negative reaction. Are they seeing are they seeing weak demand in the outlooks or are they in the guidance or are they seeing weak demand now? They've seen it in Q3. Well, they've seen it um, going into well, this quarter and and going into mm-hmm. to next quarter, I think that what's what's happening happening is is that often analysts are kind of extrapolating what they're hearing. Um, you know, any any kind of mention of weak demand, whether or not it's 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 past or or to come, um, has uh, has set the cat amongst the pigeons a bit in terms of the um, some of the investor reactions that we've seen. In terms of the the the, the official kind of forward guidance, um, it's very little little to to gauge from that really it's very difficult to see any kind of clear patterns one thing that's that's actually kind of coming through is a lot of consumer spending is still pretty robust we've seen you know particularly in kind of experiences rather than things um mm-hmm. things like um uh, hotels cruise lines so we had upgraded guidance from from the likes of hilton and, and carnival cruising so some things are, are, are still positive but but meanwhile, other areas like I think chemicals, for example, was 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 saw it was an area where we saw some 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 weakness in, in guidance. But um, but yeah, it's um, I think that that's that's kind of just just taking the edge off earnings season. And mm. I think it's kind of interesting that you know, well, how have these companies been able to to beat earnings when when sales have perhaps been a bit disappointing? Yeah. I think it does, does come down to what I like to call levers. I think great companies have have ways of, of making that earnings number. 
you know, so they've got, you know, levers they can they can pull. Um, one of the greatest, I think, is is Apple. Um, sometimes there's so many people coming out and say, well, surely iPhone sales a week, surely iPad sales a week. No one's buying Macs anymore. So, you know, how are these companies or how is Apple beating earnings numbers? Well, it, it can just it can just do it, you see. So, you know, I think that's just that's just great companies. And I think that a lot of kind of great companies have have, have done that. Okay. Before we get before we get to the, the the bit which I want to sort of dig down with you about, which is market reaction to what's ostensibly being actually quite good reports. Um, I, I did actually read. I saw that McDonald's had reported their revenues were up fourteen percent, which I suppose plays into that ex- experiential kind of s- sector that's that's doing well. But and a lot of this is about a sort of I guess we're still talking about a resilient U.S. consumer. Is this sustainable? Is this all being spent on credit cards? I mean, what, what, what's the sort of what, what's the guidance going forward for, for this consumer demand? Do, do do analysts see this as as sort of continuing, or do we see this? I mean, that you talked about the fact that weak demand was mentioned a lot. Are we going to start seeing that then? It's, it's so difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, it's when we look back at the, the GDP number, I think the surprising thing was consumer spending was so strong. I think mm-hmm. we've we had um, so many strategists, analysts calling the, the death of the consumer, saying that all this savings built up over uh, over COVID um, has finally been extinguished and spent. And so as a result, cons- um, consumers are, are, are going to capitulate. But then Taylor Swift goes on a tour and everyone's buying thousand thousand dollar tickets. Yeah, <laughs> and and far beyond that, Alan. What, She's what, officially what? a billionaire now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've we've talked about uh, yeah the, co- the concert effect. I think that 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 that's absolutely right. And uh, it's interesting what, what you said. I think a couple of things we said before on here is about the consumer. We have to remember the thirty year mortgage issue in the states. So. Yeah. The U.S. consumer typically has three to four percent mortgages locked in for 30 years. They don't suffer like many consumers do over here in Europe. So I'd put that in there. And I, I don't know what you think um, also, Howard, but uh, very encouraging what you say about earnings. But j- j- don't you think we were just overdue a 10 percent correction? Like every year, n- nearly every year we have a 10 percent correction and we've seen one. So, you know, maybe it was nothing to do with that. Just overbought um and um a little bit overboard especially in certain stocks absolutely i think that if you look back at i know you you look at um investor surveys uh, the american association of individual investors that's a that's a great one so that just asks all its thousands of members what's going to happen to markets over the next six months are they going up they're going down or they're going to stay the same and it's just a phenomenal contrarian indicator. Yeah. And I think what we saw that back in July, August, that investors were just getting very positive. And I, I, I think that it's difficult to, to say, oh, well, one thing triggered it. But actually, it can be that just markets get slightly ahead of themselves and that we have a reaction. reaction as you say, it happens every year. Mm. Be- before we get on... Yeah, Sorry, I was so say, just before... to jump in to finish that, hmm. just, as we're down here today, I think we did mention this before, uh, Michael Hartnett, he's got a bull bear indicator looking at the sentiment. 
now everyone's bearish. I'm looking at it right now. It's a buy signal. So I think, you, yeah, I think I'm with you, Howard, being a bit contrarian. Sarah, so sorry for interrupting you. Mm, Over to you. That's right. No, I was just, I was just going to say, um, is it fair to say then that before we get to the Magnificent Seven, because we're going to look at that in a little bit more detail, but generally across sort of other sectors, is it fair to say that markets are just being a little bit more critical or a bit more discerning of companies that may have positive reports at the moment and may beat expectations, but they may be looking and thinking these are businesses that are vulnerable to sustained higher borrowing costs and potentially slower growth as well. Are they just getting a little bit more picky about the companies that are that they see are going to be good going forward, regardless of how positive their earnings reports are? Definitely. I think we've we've seen that this quarter that normally, I say normally, in an earnings season, typical earnings season, when companies report better than expected sales and, and earnings, you would expect the shares to, to rise. And then conversely, any disappointments and, and shares get punished. Now, what we've seen this quarter, and Bloomberg have had, had some quite good, good data on this, is that Normally, when a company reports sales and earnings that miss expectations, shares tend to fall around about 3% on average. Yeah. This quarter, that move has been minus 5%. So it points to um, a much more discerning investor. So any this has not been the quarter to disappoint, and we've seen that for... A number of big moves. Um, I mean, we'll come on to Magnificent Seven, but we, we have seen a number of moves on, on companies that have, have disappointed. And the other thing, um, going back to um, this was some data again from, from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, was that they were saying that for those companies that, that beat, normally you would expect to see some um, a positive price reaction. Often that price reaction um, is there at, at the opening price. But by the end of the day, it's gone. Mm. Sellers have kind of come in and maybe looked further at the results and 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 have, have sold off. And actually, they were saying that any alpha that you get from from sales and earnings beats has disappeared by the end of the day. So mm. it it has been um, an earnings season when, for one reason or another, just investors just haven't been in the mood to to reward winners and have been more more inclined to. To, to to punish those 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 companies that have disappointed. Okay, we're we're going to come on to the magnificent seven. There's one or two good examples. But I I'm guessing amongst that that group. So to summarise, then so far, sort of earnings season, we have seen more than average uh, expect sort of companies beating expectations. I think you said seventy nine percent, whereas the average is closer to seventy percent. Um, and we've actually seen earnings growth year on year of 2%, having had previous quarters of negative earnings growth. However, markets are, and investors are being put very, very tough on anybody that they feel is just not coming quite up to the mark, even though they might be sort of posting good reports, they're just perhaps not as good as they think they should be, or they're just, there's a little bit of disappointment there. And they're just being very critical and that they're not, they're not giving any quarter to any of these companies. Okay, well, let, let's come to the Magnificent Seven then. So what what were the sort of the key, what did we learn so far from what we've seen from 
we've had some good and some bad, I think, haven't we, across the board? Yes, that's right. And I'd like to go back to the film. I think we have to remember in the film yeah. <laughs> that only three of them survived, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> that's a good point. You'll bring a Steve McQueen and, and Chico, the uh, the Mexican villager, I think, were the only three who survived. But I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, you know, joking. It's, but I, th I think that it's, it's one of those things that, that I do, do see signs of the Magnificent Seven as a group just beginning to to splinter and beginning to to crack. And I think you can see that certainly from where companies are trading relative to their 200-day moving average. And um, most of them are still trading above that level, and that is a well-used metric just to determine whether or not shares are still in, in uptrends or downtrends. But Tesla's well below, right? So um, hmm. I think after disappointing uh, results, and I think they were genuinely disappointing results, um, shares were down down 10%. And that's that's taken those shares down through the 200-day. The now, um, we've, we've seen similar price reaction at, at Alphabet, although it's still in an uptrend, um, just about. So, you know, we're... Um, that's still that's still good, but then if we look across to Apple, which has reports this week, then we are right at that 200-day moving average. So I think you know it's we we just might be seeing starting to see signs that these magnificent seven who've, who've led obviously market returns just beginning to to splinter a little bit, and perhaps. Um, you know, this will turn into, I don't know, Magnificent 5, Magnificent 4. Who knows? Um, I just, yeah, I, I just think the signs aren't good. Maybe, maybe it'll be down to Berkshire Hathaway. And, and who, who else might we might have in the top three, do you think? Well, looking at earnings estimates, I mean, you can't get away from NVIDIA, really. Um, mm. It's... Uh, this this company just continues to see massive upgrades to to, to earnings because of what's happening in its um, with its chips, which are just so highly sought after for the the compute that's needed in in AI applications. So that would that's got to be a, a a big favorite to be kind of one of the last to crack. But but who knows? We have to wait and see. Mm. And does it come down to then? So we've seen sort of some some quite sort of negative reaction to, you know, slightly disappointing earnings reports. Is that is that back down to, as it was perhaps last quarter, overconfident expectations coming into earnings season? I think so. I mean, I think we, you know, going back to what I was saying about very high levels of confidence during the summer invest, from an investor's perspective, we saw all of these, these companies performing pretty well into the print. So, yeah, maybe it's just a, case it's a combination of um of slightly i guess disappointing or you know some areas of disappointment within the numbers combined with investor over over investor confidence and i think mm. that's and then obviously there's there's been other things happening in the market as well which have kind of dragged markets down okay so to jump in there sarah yeah uh, Obviously, we haven't had an NVIDIA and 
uh, Apple yet as we speak, but out of the five, I think it's a five, which you mentioned Tesla is amongst the worst, which, which are the, the best earnings, would you say, in terms of the result and, and market reaction? Well, I think, uh, convert, well, I think lots of uh, investors were probably expecting Microsoft to come out with a poor set of poor set of numbers. And I think that they've they've clearly surprised the upside. I think the same to be said for Amazon as well. I think where where maybe there were fears that you know at the at the heart of it, this is a this is a com- consumer facing company, and there were perhaps fears that 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 they were going to come unstuck this quarter. But you know, so I I, I think that those. Because I, I think expectations perhaps were perhaps quite tempered for the, for those two companies, that that's where you saw you know, the positive reactions. Okay, good, good to know. Which which brings us then to your final point, um, Alan, which was about longer term tre- trends in earnings. I mean, a couple of things to pick up there. I know you want to say something about sort of dominance of the magnificent seven and whether that makes it harder or easier for active managers, but also I guess. This point that, um, that that Howard made about the fact that sort of analyst expectations are they oh, too confident going into earnings season? I guess I know that's something you've looked at as well, isn't it? Yeah, cover, let's cover that first um, because uh, I've seen it time and time again for my career. And don't get me wrong, some of the analysts working on this, Howard mentioned Savita and. Uh, there's there's others Marco Kolonovic at JP Morgan he recently put a piece out saying earnings estimates for next year are too optimistic and I get this but look they've been going since 1974 going what does that mean that means a firm called IBIS originally basically collated all the analysts forecasts and put them into a number since 1974 I think they're mm. now by Refinitiv and so we've got a long long track record of analyst forecasts in aggregate Typically, they expect 10 to 13% earnings growth per year, and then the actual result. And these are these are the numbers, you know, very, very roughly. Over those circa 40 years, basically, uh, well, it's longer than that, it's now it's 50 years. Over those, those 50 years, only about eight times uh, earnings higher than what analysts expected. I, it's completely normal. To, to somewhat disappoint. And why? Well, the long-term earnings growth is about six and a half to seven percent. That is the number for the US and globally. I, I know the FTSE 100, which is a very narrow index and special companies in it, has is, isn't been anything like that, but that's that's the number. And and so um ignore that. Yet the stock market's gone up. Why is the stock market going up gone up? Six and a half to seven percent earnings growth in aggregate is enough. Plus you get mm. a small dividend on top. I mean, that's what really drives it, drives the stock market at, and in the long run. And stock markets are a lot more volatile than earnings. OK, we're talking about a little bit of volatility in earnings here. And they do, of course, correct in recession and then rally back, just like we saw in 2020 to 2021. But, um, yeah, so I wanted to mention that the resilience of earnings in, in, in the long run. Um, point one. Uh uh, and I guess, Howard, you've seen that time and time again as well, haven't you seen? But in terms of from a bottom up and aggregate about earnings forecasts, for example, of the 2024. Yeah, they do look optimistic. Does it mean the market's going to go down? What, what, what do you think? Exactly. Well, you know, 
knowing a lot of sell-side analysts, I know how this works, right? So these analysts are often, they're really good at forecasting what a company is going to earn next quarter or in the current quarter. There's so many other bits of data that they're excellent at kind of bringing in. So the accuracy level just really increases the shorter you get. But then if you ask them, well, what is that same company going to earn in two years time? Then it becomes a little bit foggy. Uh, and these companies, they, they, they've been to, to see company management, company management, when I, I don't see many company management teams anymore, but Back um, back in the day when I used to go and see managers or management all the time, these people are just incredibly persuasive. That's the reason why they've got to where they you know to, to CEO is is they they're they're very persuasive. They have lots of arguments about how oh growth is going to accelerate growth in a couple of years. Oh yeah, I know it's bad at the moment, but we've got this happening. We've got this happening, and and analysts kind of write this all down and they plug this into their forecasts and then. You know, lo and behold, in you know, looking out there two years hence, they've 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 got these very optimistic forecasts. So I think it's just it's natural, it's kind of how the game works. And then yeah, and then obviously as as those forecasts get closer and closer, then then the accuracy level increases and it's like, oh hang on, we've been a bit too positive there. And you do see it every single year. Earnings estimates kind of from a bottom-up perspective, as you say, start off around about 10, they kind of finish at six. Yeah. Cool. Right now, Magnificent Seven, plus Berkshire Hathaway, 30% of the index. It's been incredibly hard to outperform. I know, Howard, uh, you, you know, you've had a, a great period recently. You've, you know, one of the, the rare managers to pick NVIDIA. But what's your take on this active versus passive? I mean, um, it's been you have to concede it's been tough right but now with such concentration and by the way before you answer that because it is also the 20-year anniversary of the equally weighted s p 500 index you know that yeah you know that index yeah i, I, I did know it was 20 years old but yeah 20, okay. but it's, it's very simple to understand instead of apple having what is what is apple seven percent or something of the index right now I think it's a bit more I mean, than that, isn't it? Is it more than that now? My God, instead of these crazy weightings, crazy because it's an amazing company, we do know that, um, you basically just equal weight or 500 stocks. Anyway, these are the numbers to show uh, why it can work over 20 years. And I, I recognize this is a very long, long time. Um, the equal weighted have returned 11 and a half. S&P 500, 10.3. That's been a very good period. But of course, in the last couple of years, the equal weighted has been destroyed by the Magnificent Seven. So look, um, is it a chance for the equal weighted and active management to come back? Do you agree with my bold claim? It's time for active or what, what do you think about it, Howard? Yeah, I would take issue with this idea that you can say that because more stocks are outperforming, that means that it's easier for, for active managers. I would say that actually, in my experience, the times when I've performed best has been in times when market performance has been a little bit narrow, has been focused on a few, few areas, because then as active managers, then you can 
looked at a kind of overweight those areas to to find more companies that are exposed to those kind of themes and then as a result becomes easier to to outperform when all kinds of companies are outperforming and this is often during kind of a, the rebound from from a major market correction or a major um economic event or something like that then sometimes you just get left behind as an active manager uh, and i think the best active managers tend to uh, be very good at preserving capital. So when when markets do have those downturns, then they, then they can pivot towards those areas which are, are much more resilient. And we saw this a couple of years ago. So does it make it does it make it more likely that um, active managers are outperforming when when that dispersion is wider? I would kind of take issue with that. The other thing where um, I would Let me jump in while you're thinking. It's great to have a debate. I think that's yeah. that's good. But I, there's only one Howard Sparks. Um, but no, but being serious, I wonder because you you formally embrace momentum into your your investment approach, right? Maybe yes. you could say not exactly how you do it, but you know, and and maybe that's the problem with the active management industry. Not many do. Maybe you just describe momentum and and also. Intriguingly, theories why momentum works. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, why? Um, not sure. What is it first? What is momentum? <laughs> you know, if, if you look back um, statistically, companies that have performed well over the last, say, six months tend to outperform those companies that have done badly in the last six months. Share prices tend to trend, right? This is an important idea. Um, Stock movements aren't completely random. I know there's this whole idea of um, efficient markets and, and it should be impossible. But to be honest, markets move in, in directions, uptrends, sideways or, or downward. And I think investors, um, you're right. I, I think momentum just is, 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 hasn't been as embraced as, as statistics say it should be. Yeah. Is is it just about then momentum trading then in simple terms? Is it about following a positive trend? You know, this is the direction of travel. We're going to get on board with that direction of travel. Is that yeah, I mean, it's I, probably a bit of an oversimplification, but no, that, that is that, essentially that, what we're right. talking about. Definitely. Um, that's right. And then if you look at the flip side, the flip side is is mean reversion. So this highlight idea that what go what goes up, what's been strong inevitably will sell off and what goes and i think that certainly works as me and alan have spoken about in in other markets particularly in 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 bonds um that's that's a really good strategy isn't it alan in credit in credit in particular credit is very mean reverting but look the the academic evidence supports you that momentum works but i think what i would say is going back to the numbers uh, just a reminder, five years, 87% underperform. I I don't think, I can barely think uh, of an active manager that formally incorporates momentum, apart from yourself. I mean, they'll talk about it, but they don't formally incorporate it because, let's face it, um, it's a little bit embarrassing. Yeah, we're buying it because it's gone up. <laughs> let, let's be honest, it's as simple as that, right, Howard? It is. The amount of... Um... Clients who who don't want to buy things that we've recommended because they've gone up a lot. Now, it is a kind of a little bit embarrassing, and I, um, I, <laughs> I don't care. 
I kind of I'm embracing at this stage. Go with it. Take it on. It's yeah. working, you Howard. So I think that's fine. Now, okay. So I I think I'll take what you say on board, and I do not know what you mean. Like a rally of a trash can be really tough coming out of a recession, but I go back to the data, and even we can debate about the survivor bias and whether that's a good or bad thing. I, I it has been challenging for most active managers. So I'm going to stand by my call, a comeback for active, yourself included, of course, where you were there already. If, if I can just jump in, there was one other point I want to make. I think that where I do understand that active managers can struggle is when you've got um, large caps. I mean, it, okay. obviously, you know, when I said about narrow market performance, yeah. sometimes when, when the mega caps really perform well, and leave the market behind is i mean these kind of situations are quite rare um and i think it can be difficult for for active managers to to outperform in that scenario i think so many of market uh professionals they well particularly in, in on the buy side they have expertise in in the kind of in the mid cap and, and the small cap space and these companies they know very well yeah uh, it just does make things incredibly difficult when when you see such underperformance of, of of those kind of areas but i i would still stand by that you know in a normal environment if uh, taking out out of that large cap effect if there's areas of mu areas of, of of the market where the music's playing active managers can just rotate into those kind of areas and when there's fewer areas to to look at where the performance has been strong in my experience, it's kind of been easier to to outperform in those kind of environments. Yeah, I'll just end on one point, quite you know, almost a humorous point is, but I've never seen an active manager overweight Apple. Um, I've, I've seen plenty of active managers overweight Microsoft, um, but overweight Apple. You're saying it's bigger than a seven percent weight. I'll, I'll call out two. Um, one's a journalist. Uh, Ian Cowie of the Sunday Times, who writes very well, we'll tag him in, uh, you know, maybe get him on here even one day, uh, because he he reveals his personal portfolio. And the other one, of course, is Warren Buffett. But he bought into Apple really late, but bought into such big size. But yeah, so I, I hear what you say. When the mega caps like, like Apple, the poster child of the mega cap, really performs, it can be really tough. You've got to have so many good winners and not many people have picked NVIDIA. I think on that, Sarah, I think we should stop. I think that's it. I think I'm, I'm, I'm able to get a word in edgeways again. It's fascinating listening to you two chat away. So essentially, then we're, we're back to this discussion about active versus passive and whether when you see a concentration that we're seeing in markets, at the moment, particularly in US markets at the moment, whether that's good or bad for active managers. And I guess, well, I, the jury might still be out on this one, but it does seem to be that if you take the sort of momentum approach to investing, which is kind of riding the crest of that, that sort of that that trend, it doesn't necessarily need to go against you. But I think we're going to come back to this because we haven't quite, I don't think we've quite got the definitive answer on this yet. And as as you always say, Alan, these are all theories anyway. There is no definitive oh, answer, is there, I don't think. Uh, although, to be fair, momentum is a proven theory, but yeah. there's nothing to stop momentum not working ever again. That's the beauty of our investment industry. Exactly. That's what keeps us on his toes. It keeps us with something to talk about every week on Need to Know. Thank you very much, Alan and Howard, for joining me today. A reminder that the views expressed in this podcast 
are not intended to constitute investment advice are accurate at the time of recording and are subject to change. Don't forget to check out the podcast page on coots.com and of course subscribe to the podcast via wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you'll find some uh, additional sort of bonus episodes we've done recently. We did one on investor psychology, which is really, really interesting. Um, until the next Need to Know, bye for now. Thank you.